Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 11, Episode 11, Yoshimune's Gambit. The late 1600s was a boom time in Japanese history as a roaring economy brought prosperity to many throughout the nation who saw their standards of living rise with the swelling economic tide. The years from 1688 to 1704 mark an imperial era named Genroku, which is usually seen as the absolute high point of the Edo period. In 1697, the shogunate established a merchant collective in the Dojima district of Osaka, which was named, appropriately, the Dojima Rice Exchange. The warehouses in the district soon filled with rice, and the merchants who operated it facilitated the practice of converting rice into coin for samurai who were paid in stipends of rice koku. The brokers at Dojima and elsewhere around the nation would accept the samurai's rice and give them, in exchange, a paper receipt which was redeemable for the value of their stipend in gold coins called ryo. Typically, one ryo was equivalent to one koku of rice, but like any market commodity, the price of rice shifted depending on supply and demand. This use of paper receipts in lieu of hard cash is marked as the beginning of Japan's usage of paper money, and the Edo period rice brokerages formed the foundation of the modern Japanese banking system. During much of the boom years of genroku, the price remained steady and both samurai and merchant classes did pretty well. However, the good times did not last, and the latter years of Tokugawa Tsunayoshi's reign witnessed the beginning of a general economic decline. The shogun was becoming ever more ill and infirm and relying more and more on his sobayonin, or chamberlains, to govern on his behalf. Some of the decline can be attributed to corruption of the sobayonin, but much of it was also the result of overspending and short-sighted speculation by market manipulators. When Tokugawa Tsunayoshi died in 1709, the shogunate was not in especially great shape. The first half of Tsunayoshi's reign was spent re-establishing the shogun as the supreme ruler and the bakufu as the organ which supported the expression of his power. By the end of his tenure, however, the shogunate had once more been reduced to little more than an instrument of the shogun's every whim rather than a functional bureaucracy of checks, balances, and impartial governance. Tsunayoshi died without a direct male heir, so it fell to the bakufu to select a successor. Their choice was the daimyo of Kofu Domain, a nephew of the late shogun from the Tokugawa family. Thus, Tokugawa Ienobu became the sixth Edo period shogun of Japan. Ienobu was a scholarly man of 47 years who brought many of his teachers and advisors from Kofu to his new seat of power in Edo. Worth special mention is one Arai Hakuseki, who had served as Ienobu's advisor since 1694. Arai Hakuseki was arguably the most influential political figure during the reign of Ienobu and his successor. Both reigns were very short, but still significant, and historians attribute varying degrees of that significance to Hakuseki's advice, maneuvering, and ideological adherence. Although he had spent his youth steeped in samurai tradition inspired by his very disciplined and Spartan father, Hakuseki had served as a retainer to the ill-fated Hotta Masatoshi, the Tairo who secured the succession of Tsunayoshi. When Masatoshi was assassinated in 1684, Hakuseki lived as a ronin for a time, but drifted toward scholarly pursuits and became Tokugawa Ienobu's advisor ten years later. 
As we discuss the reforms of Ienobu, keep in mind that Arai Hakuseki deserves some credit for these ideas and their implementation. The first big change implemented by Ienobu's administration was a reshuffling of power away from the Soba Yonin. Following a series of edicts issued shortly after Ienobu's ascension, the chamberlains were once again relegated to being messengers who served at the shogun's pleasure. While many of the late Tsunayoshi's eccentricities were discarded by the new shogun, one area which would enjoy continued, enthusiastic support was the general adoption of Neo-Confucianism as the nation's driving political philosophy. Confucian scholars had, for many centuries, helped guide the ship of state, but often acted in a more spiritual rather than civic capacity, typically serving as diviners for powerful leaders, especially during Sengoku Jidai. Near the beginning of the Edo period, when Tokugawa Ieyasu was eagerly pursuing every available avenue toward establishing his Bakufu's authority and legitimacy, he had supported Neo-Confucianism as one of many such avenues. One of his top advisors was Hayashi Razan, the founder of the Hayashi clan, who set about promoting Neo-Confucianism as the leading political philosophy of the nation, especially the branch inspired by Chinese scholar Chu Shi. Throughout the early decades of the Edo shogunate, however, these scholars were one voice among many, but with the ascension of Tokugawa Tsunayoshi and the short tenure of Tokugawa Ienobu after him, Neo-Confucianism at last enjoyed its moment in the sun. It was a long moment, as scholars from the university which Hayashi Razan founded would continue to not only serve as basic functionaries for the shogunate, but gradually came to wield influence over the ship of state themselves. The school which Razan founded was named Shohei-ko, which was the Japanese name for Konfutsu's birthplace, and it was subsequently renamed Yushima Seido, meaning Yushima Sacred Hall. Razan's title as the school's rector, the most senior official of the college, became hereditary, and his descendants continued in his footsteps as the students they educated served in various offices throughout the Edo Bakufu. It's worth noting that Arai Hakuseki's particular flavor of Neo-Confucianism was somewhat focused on ritual and ceremony. While Confucianism itself has always had a practical dimension, some of its most ardent adherents were attracted to the more metaphysical side, in which the primary objective was to bring secular authority into harmony with supposed spiritual forces. While much of Arai Hakuseki's work, especially including tracing the Tokugawa's family lineage to the Minamoto clan, would secure his legacy in the annals of shogunate history, not everyone was impressed with his particularly ceremonial and ritualistic approach to governance. Under Tokugawa Ienobu's short-lived tenure, censorship laws were repealed. Bakufu officials were encouraged to pass any criticism of the shogunate by the common people up the chain of command until it reached the shogun himself. He ended the restrictive consumption laws of Tsunayoshi, which made him extremely popular. Ienobu also sought to improve relations between the Bakufu and the imperial court. The Fujiwara regent Konoi Motohiro visited Edo in 1711 on behalf of the sitting emperor Nakamikado. Ienobu received him courteously, and as a result of their summit, younger sons of the emperor were no longer required to enter the Buddhist priesthood. This policy had previously been put in place to limit the number of candidates for Tenno, something the shogunate had an obvious vested interest in limiting. Unfortunately for Ienobu, his three-year-old son would succeed him much sooner than the shogun probably expected. In 1712, at the age of 50, Tokugawa Ienobu died after a three-year reign. The new shogun, so-called, 
was his son, the aforementioned three-year-old boy. This would be the second child shogun of the Edo period, though his reign would prove to be far less consequential than his predecessor Tokugawa Ietsuna. That does not mean, however, that nothing happened during the three years in which the son of Ienobu, who was subsequently named Ietsugu, was technically the shogun. Because Ietsugu was still a toddler, the day-to-day responsibility of governance fell on the Bakufu officials and top advisors. Arai Hakuseki in particular came to wield enormous power and influence during Ietsugu's reign, thus ensuring that the government would continue to be dominated by Neo-Confucian partisans of his particular stripe. However, there were a few problems that arose that required careful solutions. The market prices of rice and other foodstuffs had begun rising during Ienobu's tenure, and the trend threatened to continue after his death. Hoping to curtail potential famines fueled by inflation, the Bakufu under Arai Hakuseki's direction issued a new currency which was slightly debased, meaning that its pure gold content had been reduced in favor of cheaper metals. For a variety of economic reasons which I admit I don't completely understand, this new debased currency did stabilize prices for a short while, but the shogunate would try to repeat this one neat trick throughout the rest of the Edo period whenever inflation rose, and it would work a little less well every time. In matters of trade, demand for foreign goods continued its usual upward climb, and seeking to prevent similar runaway prices of imported goods, the shogunate restructured their arrangement with Chinese and Dutch traders who came to Dejima to sell their wares. Concerned that too much of Japan's precious metals were being exported in trade, Arai Hakuseki arranged for trade in kind to be practiced instead, with imports and exports changing hands directly rather than imports being paid for with coins. The annual limit was adjusted to 30 ships from China and 2 ships from Holland. While this did allow for a steadier flow of much-coveted foreign goods into Japanese markets, it still left Japan in a fairly isolated position geopolitically. In 1716, shortly after the trade reforms, the now 6-year-old Tokugawa Ietsugu became ill and tragically passed away. Once again, it became impossible to appoint a new shogun who was the direct heir of his predecessor, and a solution was needed from one of the cadet branches of the Tokugawa clan. After some debate, a candidate was selected from the Ki branch. Ki province, or rather Wakayama-han, was the domain of the descendants of Tokugawa Ieyasu's tenth son. Among the Gosanke houses from which heirs to the shogunate were selected, the branch which had settled in Owari province was considered more senior than the key branch, having descended from one of Ieyasu's elder sons. However, the daimyo of Wakayamahan had already displayed great skill in leadership, which had attracted the notice of the Bakufu. Having been appointed as daimyo in 1705, after the deaths of his father and two elder brothers, Tokugawa Shinosuke inherited a domain which was riddled with debt and in bad need of infrastructure repair. Upon his elevation to daimyo, he changed his name to Yorimasa. Wakayama Domain had habitually borrowed money from the shogunate since Shinosuke's grandfather's tenure, and in spite of producing an impressive half a million koku per annum, their debt to the bakufu was considerable, and brought its own share of difficulties. Making matters worse, in 1707 a terrible tsunami assaulted the shores of Wakayama Domain, killing many people and leaving nearly all of their coastal villages utterly ruined. In spite of the troubles which assailed Wakayama Domain during Shinosuke's tenure as daimyo, 
he provided much-needed leadership and tackled each problem from a practical perspective unclouded by political or philosophical ideology. This is not to say that he completely turned things around for the province, only that he managed to set it on a better path toward recovery and, in time, prosperity. When young Ietsugu died in 1716, the experienced 33-year-old Tokugawa Yorimasa seemed an obvious choice to succeed the boy Shogun, especially given that the more senior Owari branch's daimyo was an untested young man of 20 years who seemed to be more disposed toward a luxurious lifestyle. When he became the Shogun in 1716, Tokugawa Yorimasa changed his name for the last time to Yoshimune. He would go on to lead the Bakufu for nearly 40 years and was one of the most consequential shoguns of the entire Edo period. Tokugawa Yoshimune inherited a Bakufu which had become occupied by ceremony, Confucian debates, and a rapidly growing crisis of revenue shortage. Luckily for the shogunate, Yoshimune had already dealt with similar problems during his time as the daimyo of Wakayama, and he was prepared to find solutions in unexpected places. One of his first orders of business was dismissing Arai Hakuseki and replacing him with his own Neo-Confucian scholar, Muro Kyuso. It seems likely that this reshuffling was roughly equal parts justified dismissal of an advisor who was not equipped to manage the problems facing the state, and also a settling of an old score. Back when he was daimyo of Wakayama, he had requested material assistance from the Bakufu many times, only to be denied either cash or debt forgiveness by Hakuseki himself. Although the new shogun would learn shortly that the shogunate had pressing financial issues of its own, the fact was that Hakuseki's guidance was diminishing the power of both the shogun and the bakufu at large. While some of Hakuseki's reforms helped promote stability, he drifted toward the metaphysical in a way that was distracting, obsessing over having the shogun and his officials perform rituals in the midst of crises which were meant to summon divine assistance, but in reality only served to take up valuable time which might otherwise be used to find solutions. Yoshimune's experience as a daimyo had taught him the value of practicality in leadership, and his newly installed Neo-Confucian advisor Muro Kyuso tended toward the same hard-nosed materialist practicality. It is worth noting that the new monetary policy introduced by Arai Hakuseki was left more or less intact by the new administration. To introduce sudden change into a money system that had just been overhauled would have probably resulted in complete disaster, and although Yoshimune may have harbored a grudge against Hakuseki, he had sense enough not to shipwreck the entire state over such petty enmity. The actual finances of the shogunate in 1716 were, to put it mildly, absolutely careening toward fiscal disaster. On paper, it was a simple matter of expenditures far outstripping income. There was no doubt in Yoshimune's mind that measures needed to be taken to ensure national solvency and avoid the pitfalls of bakufu bankruptcy. When seeking which corners might be cut to ensure that the state could pay its bills, he turned his eyes toward the Hatamoto, whose numbers had swelled beyond necessity. In 1721, financial matters became too critical to ignore any longer. Though he knew that it might carry a certain level of risk, in 1722 Yoshimune began a sweeping set of reforms aimed at making the Bakufu solvent while simultaneously shoring up its support among the daimyo around the nation whose clans were approaching similarly dire financial straits. 
The situation with the Hatamoto was essentially that they were multiplying because their many children were inheriting their position and thus were owed similar stipends. Making matters worse, some Hatamoto had been adopting children as well, likely as a means of expanding their family and combined income base. Such adoptions were essentially abolished under Yoshimune's new rules, and the practice of children inheriting their father's rank was also generally forbidden. The lower-ranked gokenin were likewise placed under inheritance restrictions, as were many of the fudai daimyo who served as vassals to the shogunate. This did not mean that the offices themselves were abolished, but that Yoshimune would interview candidates personally and only allow the appointment of those who impressed him. In many ways, this was actually a return to the original intention behind the office of Hatamoto, which were meant to be loyal retainers rather than mere hereditary aristocracy. The gokenin, who were lower-ranked shogunate vassals, were likewise limited in their numbers and rights of inheritance. Daimyo nationwide were asked to make a contribution to the Bakufu's treasury, specifically 100 koku per every 10,000 koku of their annual income. While the official letters requesting the sum were littered with florid apologetic language, the daimyo had long since learned that requests from the shogun were not optional. The total contribution of all daimyo nationwide, both fudai and tozama, was recorded as 1,750,000 koku, a vast sum which helped stabilize bakufu finances. Yoshimune's gambit was not without obvious potential pitfalls. Creating new ronin through disinheriting many of the children of Hatamoto and Gokenin while simultaneously levying what was essentially a 1% income tax on daimyo nationwide might seem like good ways to give your potential enemies fuel for opposition. However, Yoshimune was not merely a tax-hungry tyrant, but a far-seeing practical leader who understood the political realm as well as he did the financial. He sweetened the pot for the daimyos by announcing that Sankin Kotai, or alternating attendance, was suspended for the time being until the crisis had passed. From 1722 to 1730, daimyo were not required to spend every other year attending the shogun in Edo. This was hugely beneficial for clan treasuries, as the expenses needed to travel and then live in the Bakufu capital were considerable, and without the biennial visit, they would save much more than what they had just contributed to the shogunate. While relaxing the rules of Sankin Kotai may have spelled disaster for previous shoguns, the hard truth was that numbers were down across the board. The great clans governing domains around the nation were generally not any better off financially than the shogunate, and in most cases their situations were far worse. There was probably little risk in allowing the daimyo to spend eight contiguous years in their own han, as that time would be utilized trying to dig the domain out from under its own pile of debt. In addition to taxing the daimyo and making cutbacks against bakufu expenditures, Yoshimune also sought to make improvements to Japan's larger economy and future tax base. Because agriculture was the primary engine of state revenue, he encouraged large-scale efforts to create new land clearances in shogunate-controlled domains and increase cultivation of rice and other crops. He solicited wealthy merchants to help fund these efforts, which did indeed bear some fruit, if you'll pardon the pun. By 1730, Bakufu-controlled domains were producing an additional 200,000 koku of rice, and within a few years, the income from these lands was reliably increasing. 
The price of rice itself tended to fluctuate under pressure from numerous market forces, which caused real problems in the area of samurai stipends. Tokugawa Yoshimune wanted to find a way to reliably stabilize prices year in, year out, so he turned to the merchants themselves to find a solution. What resulted from this interaction between the merchants and the bakufu was the emergence of a new kind of organization, the kabunakama. The term nakama describes a cooperative venture of merchants in a given field, similar to a cartel or a trust. Such nakama had existed before Yoshimune's reign, and previous administrations had attempted to curtail their existence without any success. The new kabunakama were official organizations recognized by the bakufu, and thus, to a certain degree, accountable to the shogunate. The kabu in kabunakama means share, and this referred to the fact that the members of the kabunakama were shareholders. These shares were assigned, however, and not tradable or sellable. These officially recognized trusts were expected to manage trade within their particular fields with an eye toward cooperation, controlling prices, and keeping the markets relatively stable. The official recognition went a long way toward giving the kabunakama a level of legitimacy which previous guilds like Za did not possess. Gradually, but inevitably, the kabunakama would expand and come to replace older-style guilds whose members were folded into the new system. Although Tokugawa Yoshimune was naturally empowered by reducing the number of retainers and vassals, as well as preserving vacancies in the offices of departed Roju, he insisted on overturning previous embargoes against criticizing the government. He erected complaint boxes throughout Edo for anyone to submit their own personal grievances and suggestions. There was even an incident in which a man tried to hand him a petition personally, and was at first threatened with arrest by the shogun's bodyguards. Yoshimune waved the guards away and accepted the letter, thanking the man for his thoughtful suggestions. Apparently repulsed by censorship of almost any kind, he relaxed the laws against importing foreign books, though he drew the line at works with a religious theme. Christianity was still illegal, in spite of the secret practitioners throughout Kyushu. A new body of scholarship arose under the relaxed import laws called Rangaku, which literally means Dutch learning, but is better understood under the broader term of Western studies. European books, mostly Dutch or Dutch translations, began to flood large cities like Osaka and Edo, where translators rushed to create Japanese versions of texts which ranged in subject matter from mathematics to science to geography. The body of policies which Yoshimune promoted was dubbed the Kyoho Reforms, being named for the Kyoho imperial era in which they took place. This period spanned the years 1722 to 1730, and in 1731, the shogun canceled the increased 1% income tax on the daimyo, but required them to restart their Sankin Kotai obligations. He would reign as shogun until 1745, but the 15 years between the Kyoho reforms and his official retirement would be anything but smooth and easy. Increasing the volume of arable land nationwide was certainly a good policy if your goal was simply to produce more agricultural goods, but because rice served as a medium of exchange, an increase in the available food nationwide led to a drop in demand, and subsequently, lower prices. Because the samurai stipends were based on rice, this caused the real value of their koku to drop steadily at a time when the cost of living remained high. 
the merchants who controlled the Dojima rice exchange in Osaka actively manipulated the market, keeping wholesale demand low while controlling enough of the rice stock to keep retail prices high. Famine resulted in 1733, which was followed by riots in Osaka. Yoshimune's attention was largely focused on stabilizing a market disaster caused by speculators and manipulators, and in 1735, rice merchants in Edo were forced to respect a fixed-price scheme of one ryo per one koku, which was intended to bring the market back into balance while ensuring that common people could afford to eat. For the remaining decade in which he ruled as shogun, Tokugawa Yoshimune, as well as every other daimyo nationwide, found themselves stuck in a cycle of misery from which there would be no easy escape. As prices for crops fell, the Bakufu and many regional governing authorities naturally raised taxes to try and close the revenue gap, resulting from cheaper rice. These tax increases were uniform, and thus fell hardest upon the poorest of rural village farmers. Occasional bouts of unrest followed, and while these were generally isolated mini-uprisings that flared up without any large-scale coordination between villages, they were a cause for concern for both the daimyo and the bakufu. Although his reign was defined by economic instability and constant patchwork governance from crisis to crisis, I don't think it's fair to lay the blame solely at Tokugawa Yoshimune's feet. In fact, he so often was engaged in trying to manage the instability of the rice markets that he was called Kome Kubo, or the Rice Shogun. Many of the market economic forces which were driving the instability were not well understood by the Bakufu of the early to mid-1700s, and much of the activity causing the crises was outside of the shogunate's sphere of control. In A History of Japan 1615-1867, author George Sansom declares that Yoshimune was the greatest Tokugawa shogun since Ieyasu himself. I think he is largely correct in this assessment, which may sound surprising given the tumultuous nature of Yoshimune's tenure. However, given the limited options available to the Bakufu at the time, the case can comfortably be made that he did the best he could with what he had. His decision to loosen the Sakoku policies of isolation by allowing more foreign scholarship into the nation also led to some exciting discoveries, inventions, and developments which we will discuss in greater detail in a future bonus episode. Tokugawa Yoshimune died in 1751, six years after formally retiring in 1745. By this point, his son Ieshige had been installed as the shogun at the insistence of Yoshimune. Ieshige was beset by a number of factors which caused more than a few Bakufu officials to raise objections to his succession. Yoshimune, with almost palpable irony, cited the Confucian principle of primogeniture and insisted that Ieshige would be his successor. For better or worse, the nation was solely in Ieshige's hands in 1751. This is the final regular episode of Season 11. There will be several bonus episodes still to come, which will release one per week every Monday hereafter. I decided to end this season with the reign of Yoshimune, where significant cracks begin to appear in the Shogunate's foundation. Whether those cracks could be sealed would determine the Bakufu's future as a national government, as they continue to try and manage an unpredictable economy, keep the warrior class happy in spite of a decline in their real incomes, and continue to convince the daimyo around the nation that their interests were still best served by supporting the shogunate. Next time, 
we will take a closer look at the art and artists of the early Edo period and discuss the continued impact on Japanese culture today. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. 